Welcome to the Harvard on China podcast, now available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. I'm James Evans here at Harvard's Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies, and today we're talking to the Fairbank Center's Amy Jung, who is our 2016-17 An Wang postdoctoral fellow in the environmental humanities, and recently appointed assistant professor of anthropology at New York University. Amy's research asks how bugs and insects are used in China to process urban waste in an environmentally conscious way. So, welcome today, Amy. Thank you. Your most recent talk here, you discussed a chapter of your dissertation that I will summarize as "bugs that eat food waste." Yeah. What does that involve? <laughs> yes. So people are usually surprised that that is the topic of my talk, and the paper、um, looks at a specific breed of flies. It's the black soldier fly, or the Hermitia lucian, and it's a breed of non-pest species fly. And the larvae is a great eater of food waste. And this was a project that I discovered while I was doing my fieldwork in Guangzhou, specifically when I came across the problem that. People in Guangzhou face, which is how to treat their organic waste, which is about fifty percent of the food waste. So, China is producing all this waste; about half of it's organics, and no one knows what to do with it. So, I met an entomologist who was raising the species of flies to eat organic waste quickly. And the really kind of、um, interesting point is that the diet of the black soldier fly larvae is similar to the Cantonese diet. So this is a breed of larvae that loves foods that's high in fat, so that's salty, that、um, don't easily break down by other sort of composting worms that we're familiar with. So the paper looks at broadly how he is imagining the fly as a waste treatment technology, but it also gets into the question of、um, if we were to use this as a waste treatment technology, say in our backyard, what does this tell us about how people live with insects? And so, is is living with insects? Is that something that you've seen around China as well, or in other parts of the world? That's a great question.、Um, actually, so when I presented this paper the first time, someone was like, "Well, this is actually quite Cantonese. Like, there's a long tradition of not just living with insects, but you know, eating insects. And there's there's a different constitution of、um, humans and bugs in that part of the world. And in my paper, what I try to point out is that. There is a long history of coexisting with insects. So people have used silkworms,、um, the silkworm mulberry、uh, carp system, to raise fish.、Um, there's crickets,、um, a long history of cricket fighting, which is huge in gambling hells culture and has been written about a lot. And it's not until the modern era,、um, specifically in the 1950s, through the、uh, Four Pests campaign, where people really systematically tried to rid themselves of insects. That we became separated, or there was this sense that insects should no longer be a part of our everyday life. This man that you met in Guangzhou, who uses these insects to break down organic waste, how does he go about doing that? So you have these larvae, and you have the black soldier who has this natural life cycle. So it, you know, exists as a larvae, and it eats waste during this life stage,、um, and it lives for about a month. So in its last week, it metamorphosizes into a fly, which is sort of this ant-like insect with wings. So the question is, how do we come up with some sort of apparatus that will allow us to? Basically, put this in the backyard of an urban high-rise. So Chinese cities now are filled with these、um, gated communities, these large complexes. So it's not exactly easy to raise flies. So 
what I became interested in is um, he has this first prototype of a gray box where the essential idea is, is that it's like a vending machine. So you put uh, organic waste and larvae in and you would get out um, the essentially excretion from the larvae, which becomes compost and larger um, larvae, which you can ship off and let the larvae breathe and die. However, this enclosed gray box, which would basically separate people from the insects, was not a great environment for the insects, so the insects all died. So instead, he switched to a model where a caretaker was raising the bugs like children, essentially. So they were all separate into trays, and you would have to water and tend to them, depending on the different temperature and the moisture content in the room. So it was really hard to get a consistent environment for the larvae when they're enclosed. So... I talk about how the enclosure that's in the design of this apparatus and the enclosure that we live in in terms of gated community marry each other and this I focus on this sort of enclosed imaginary that is really prevalent I think in um, contemporary modern conceptualizations of living space. So he's still working on some kind of scaling up of his process. Exactly so scaling up um, how to make this transportable mobile and adaptable to the urban ecologies of contemporary Chinese cities. And I suppose this ties into a broader conversation that China is having at the moment about recycling and what to do with its environment, not just its built environment, but also its waste environment. How does this tie into a broader conversation about China's changing relationship with its environment? That's a great question. So my dissertation um, started out looking at exactly this problem, which is China's producing this large amount of waste since its post-reform period. And right now, the state's trying to come up with a modern solution to treat waste. So I started out thinking about the informal collectors that you'll see in China who are in charge of recycling its scraps, uh, papers, plastic bottles. But when I got to China and started doing my field work, what became apparent to me was the ways in which a state's reliance on modern technologies dominated the ways that official waste policy uh, was implemented. So China officially wants to build uh, waste energy incinerators, and this is generating a lot of protests in major cities across China, which you'll see. However, what I unearthed through my field work was also that waste management wasn't just about the things that we already hear about prevalently, like incinerators or informal collectors, but there's a range of innovative uh, ways that waste is generating all sorts of relationship between humans and non-humans in China's environment. So for example, this fly project, um, I look at another project where these anti-waste incineration activists turned environmentalists are now fermenting their organic waste as a cleaning product that they say can rejuvenate not only their bodies, uh, but also local ecologies like riverways. So what I was particularly interested in is all of these novel ways that people are relating to waste material in China. And it sounds like these new techniques for dealing with waste are very grassroots level. It seems like it's very much individuals taking their own initiatives. Is that something that you've seen in your research? What was really interesting is the ways in which the state imagines waste management to be a large centralized problem and solution. So they want to build the world's largest waste energy incinerators in Shenzhen and the largest landfills. 
Um, so you aggregate things that we are no longer interested in, you ship them off, and some sort of machine takes care of the work. But as you point out, what I've seen is that people are really increasingly wanting to take some form of personal responsibility for the things that they produce. So a lot of their solutions are much more localized and much more specific and they involve others' forms of relationships like taking care of waste, fermenting waste, breaking down waste, sorting waste. That's much more individualized. What does that do for communities? Because obviously you don't produce waste as an individual in isolation. So has there been a degree of sort of community building around waste management? That's also such a great question. So part of the story is that as China's generating the waste, it's also going through an urban transformation. So I talk about these urban gated communities, which are really at the locus of new imaginaries and activities of community. And the conventional story is that China demolished its older neighborhoods and social relations were cleavaged. And these gated communities are these isolated, individualized um, cells that people migrate to with no sense of social ties. And what's been really interesting for me is looking at the ways in which something like waste management is mobilizing all sorts of coming together. So I talk about these urban middle class activists who are protesting, but who are also fermenting waste. But um, interestingly, there's also villagers and anti-waste incineration politics or bring villagers and the middle class together in some sense while they use different strategy but forming all sorts of other relationships. So so that's part of my interest as well is how does this undergird new forms of urban um, environmental politics in these new spaces. And in particular talking about environmental protesters. So we've, we've certainly seen more people protesting in the last few years And there seems to be a very sort of delicate balance between the state and protesters in terms of the state listening and allowing some degree of protest, but also not letting it go too far. It's it's a great delicate balance because part of what you're seeing, I think, is that um, the protests are a response in lieu of earlier public participation processes that should happen when you're building some form of public infrastructure. So there is this idea that a lot of these basic utilities like water, waste, that um, a lot of scholars are now writing about are perceived as public. So people feel that they should have a say and a claim in how they're supposed to be implemented and where they're cited. And the story in China has always been that urban middle class people are depoliticized. So this is mobilizing some form of reaction. And the state in response, of course, sometimes this is great public feedback. So for instance, with waste energy incinerators, the protests have actually mobilized a lot of relocations of incinerators. The problem, however, is always whose voice gets heard. So in a lot of cases, what happens is that an incinerator that was sited next to a urban middle class gated community will be relocated in a village. So the local specificities of the protest often shapes that particular outcome. So it's very much a process that's being negotiated. So in some ways, the story of waste actually very nicely mirrors not only China's urbanization push, but a lot of what's been going on since Gaigu Kaifeng, you know, since 1978, in terms of urban-rural divides and who gets prioritized and who the government sees as being its biggest supporters. 
Absolutely. So the so the ways that we deal with waste naturally brings out a lot of social cleavages,、um, issues of inequality. So I think about it as a great medium for looking at all of these relations that get constituted and their environmental relations, but they're also class politics. You know, so my research does look at the post-reform period, but of course the story goes back longer. And China has a really fascinating history of about using night soil that was a natural way to connect the rural and the urban economies of socialists、uh, scavenging and recycling. So you know, I think waste in China is a, is just like a fascinating and rich topic. Oh, that's great! You can be that person who does waste and junk. Actually, there's a whole like group of us now,、oh, so、great. yeah, so I'm not the only one. And so that brings me on to、um, a topic that you've been working on here at the Fairbank Center as part of your postdoc with us, and specifically with Professor Karen Thornburg about the environmental humanities, which is this sort of new field that's developing out of not only the growing interest in environmentalism in the West, but also China's growing interest in environmentalism. What does this project involve? So it's a really exciting initiative that Karen is、um, spearheading, and it's、um, called the Environmental Humanities Initiative.、Um, and what it seeks to do is to bring together、um, scholars in the humanities and social sciences at Harvard. So there's a range of schools that are participating: the、um, GSD, Faculty of Arts and Sciences, School of Education, and what. It seeks to do is to get these scholars to talk across their disciplines. So that's what one of the things that's been really great about the issue of the environment is that people are really forced to come together and to think about how they can work together to address, say, a topic like waste, but also topics like extraction, topics like environmental education. So last September we had a. Kickoff workshop where、um, over two days people presented their research and、um, right now we're just in the midst of getting proposal to work、uh, collaboratively in the next three years and there's also a great public impact aspect of the research so the idea is really to not just produce new scholarship but to think about what this might actually do for the question of solving our environmental crisis more broadly how do we think about this issue、uh, culturally and how might We mobilize other actors aside from just academics from participating. Even though here at the Fairbank Center we're focusing on environmental humanities, this really is a very multidisciplinary project. Yes,、yeah, so the title's always been a bit of a, a, a problem for us. So, so it. Involves people basically working outside of a of just a limited science and technology perspective or the school of engineering. So, the real、um, challenge is to think about the problem of the environment as not just a technical problem that only certain people can weigh in, but as a broader social, political, and cultural issue that everyone should be working together to think about. And so, at the Fairbank Center in particular,、um, so next year, for example, we'll we'll continue having a post. Stock who focuses on environmental humanities. Yes. Where do you see a project like this developing in the future? Yeah. So Elizabeth Lord, who's gonna be the next、uh, Awang Environmental Humanities postdoctoral fellow, is she's gonna be、um, helping to work on this project, but also to develop her own really exciting research. There's so many environmental humanities initiatives kicking off all over the place. So at Penn,、um, at Yale, UC San Diego, they all have these similar initiatives, and I think it's really speaking to a need and a feeling in general that 
this conversation that has been happening perhaps in individual disciplines, people need to come together. And there's also been great projects like the Data Rescue Project in which academics have worked to mine and save environmental data. So great opportunities for scholars to collaborate more broadly to really do something about, about this issue at a point where um, the environmental problem is seeming very much like a political one. This brings me on to a, a question, which is this narrative at the moment is that as the United States is closing down a lot of its focus on the environment and climate change in particular, China is positioning itself as more of a leader. Do you agree with that statement? I want to believe in that statement um, because it, it's true that China has invested a lot in solar power and renewables and have seemingly taken an initiative in leading a, a transition of its own energy economy. Um, however, I think that any discussion of China's sort of new environmental initiatives need to take into account the sort of tremendous environmental degradation and catastrophe that's happened in the name of development over the last 30 years and perhaps even longer. So I think that one must always be careful to kind of think about what's driving these new impulses and what impacts they have. So here I think, you know, motive does matter. And I, I, I do believe that China's now realizing that we need to do something about the environment and it's not just natural resources that needs to be extracted. It's not development at all costs yet. I do think, depending on what happens to its economy, often in China, environmental projects are not implemented the way that they uh, say that they're going to be. So looking at how projects unfold and, and how this develops will be critical. Before we let you go, we have our quickfire Fairbank 5 round. Oh, I've been looking forward to this. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and so now we've had people requesting that we do this with them. Um, so it's a, a quickfire, five questions about China. So the first question is your favorite Chinese food. Uh, so, you know, I, I grew up in Chengdu and of course, do you know Fuji Fei Pian? I don't. You don't know Fuji Fei Pian? I've been to Chengdu okay. and I've eaten lots of like yeah. Sichuan food, but I didn't yeah. know. Yeah, so I mean, it's like tripe and beef mixed up in spicy sauce. It's really just a local dish that's become really popular in the West, but it's really hard to get right. So I'm always really excited when I find a place with great Fuji Fei Pian. Your favorite place in China? Wow, there's so many. It's funny, I really like urban parks in China. So urban parks in Guangzhou, urban parks in Beijing, I mean, these are all great places for me, but I also really love the West in China. So we took a hike to Sigunyangshan about three years ago, and that was probably one of just my favorite, you know, memories that I'll always have with me. Your favorite Chongyu or Chinese saying? I, I like like manzo as just a really like <laughs> so manzo is great. Sometimes I, I tell people here to just walk slow. Life looks different when you're walking slow. A book that you've read recently on China that you would recommend? Um, so I just read Sigrid Schmalter's Red Revolution, Green Revolution, and she was here as a speaker um, this year, and I, I would recommend that um, for anyone interested in agriculture, in socialist science, and there's also a little bit about etymology, um, but she's just a great historian. I love that book. Yeah. And for me, as someone who's not in history, science, or environment, I thought it was fascinating as a piece of history as well. Absolutely. And that sort of binary between what is red and what is green and what is capitalist and what is socialist, and I thought it was 
great. Yeah, I yes, I, I love her work, so that's great. And last thing is, because we are a university, a class that you took on China that changed your thinking for good or ill? So I took a directed reading when I was doing my master's degree at McMaster University in Hamilton, and it was on China in the 80s. It was really just looking at the intellectual's response to the opening of China, and I really remember that course fondly, like looking at this moment when people were really very involved and like motivated and thinking about what does a new China look like, you know, a moment that happens repeatedly in Chinese history, but that class really sort of really made me very much want to get involved in studying China. Well, Amy, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. Don't forget to subscribe to the Harvard on China podcast, now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. 